Well, good morning, church. Yeah, if you have your Bibles, would you open to Hebrews chapter 8? Hebrews 8 is our text. Today, if you do not bring a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of or behind you. Uh, If you do not own a Bible, uh, we don't say this as often as we should. If you don't own one, please take that Bible as a gift to us. If you don't like that one, we have plenty in Lost and Found. We'll scratch out a name and give it right to you, okay? Uh, It will be great today, my gift to you. I love you. Um, Hebrews chapter 8. We will be uh, prayerfully through the entirety of this chapter today. Uh, It is only 13 verses. Um, and I say only, uh, we, we could spend a lifetime in these 13 verses, uh, but we will uh, try to spend only about 35 minutes today. Um, as we jump into this text today, we, we remember, if you're new with us, day one, um, the author of Hebrews, through this entire letter, is helping us understand first century Christian who, who are Hebrew believers, they were a part of Judaism, but they've trusted Christ, uh, and us today. That Jesus is far greater and far better than anything else we'll ever know or see, right? Uh, We we get that. You probably hear that a lot. You're probably uh, inundated and bombarded with that. But there's a reason we need to be reminded over and over and over again about anything. is because we easily forget. So probably if you've been with us from, from day one when we have been journeying through this book... You've heard that, you know, Jesus is better. Trust in Jesus. Don't trust in anything else. And we hear that on a Sunday morning. We say, yes, praise God. I'm going to trust in Jesus and Christ alone. And then we leave out of those doors and Monday happens. And then we find ourselves trusting in other things. Usually it's us that we're trying to trust ourselves. Um, Today, it's the culmination of the first seven chapters, all in chapter eight. Uh, And then it also begins the rest of the book all the way through chapter 13. Uh, And the idea is this. Whatever it is that you've ever experienced in Jesus, guys, do you know that there's more? Like, like prayerfully, I, I look at this service, and this service is probably, as far as age goes, um, this is on the higher end of our age across the services, okay? I would also say it's the more committed of the services because you're here at 8 a.m., praise God, and it's 36 degrees outside. I'm glad that you're here, right? I hope you never forget this truth. That whatever you've learned in Jesus so far, there's still infinitely more to learn. Whatever you've enjoyed in him so far, there's infinitely more to enjoy. Whatever you have been comforted in him by, there's infinitely more to be comforted by. Guys, we don't ever get to the end of Christ. No matter matter if you've been in the faith 70 years, 80 years, we never get to the end of God's goodness. And And I pray that you understand. I pray that we are always striving to know more of who he is and know more of the love that he has towards us. That is what this author is trying to help this group understand and us by nature of being readers through it. Okay, uh, so, so what we go, are going to do today, we are going to jump in and we're going to take it verses uh, at a time. Usually we go verse by verse and line by line. Uh, today, just because of the context, uh, some of these verses are going to be coupled together because it'll make more sense if we read verse 1 and 2 together as opposed to 1 and then break it and then go to 2. So let's read verses 1 and 2 together right now. The author of Hebrews says this. Now the point in what we are saying is this. That we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven, a minister in the holy places, 
in the true tent that the Lord has set up and not man. Now, guys, these, these two verses tell us an awful lot about our Lord Jesus and also what the Lord Jesus is even doing now today. It gives us clarity over these last seven chapters. We kind of wish, and I don't know if you guys do this, if you've ever worked in business uh, or, or at least a job that had meetings, right? Does anybody ever have a job that had meetings throughout the week, staff meetings or, or whatever it would be? Do you ever wish that those meetings were a lot longer? Like, do you ever find yourself in those meetings when they get over and say, no, it's too, it's too early to end it. we got to go another couple of hours. Nobody wants long meetings, right? Uh, um, and, and so when we get here, we kind of think, okay, why did it take to chapter 8 for you to say, this is what I'm trying to say? Why you didn't say that in verse 1 of chapter 1, right? He is building this case, but he has given clarity here in chapter 8, verse 1. This is what I'm trying to tell you, he says, that we have such a high priest, one who is better than Abram, one who is better than Melchizedek, one who is better than angels and creation and anything else. This, this high priest we have, his name is Jesus. Now, I want you to see what comes, comes next. Let's look at why this is better, why, why Jesus is better, even at this moment, all right? He is seated, active, present, Okay, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven. All right, so he is to the right hand of God the Father in heaven. The right hand is the place of, of supreme exaltation, of honor and authority. So anyone to the right hand of the leader of anything is, is the most trusted confidant. Okay, so what we have in heaven is we have the, the, king, the king of glory. That we, we have God the Father who is sitting on the throne and Christ Jesus sits to his right on his throne, the ruling throne of heaven. And Jesus is here, and, and you're going to see why this is so important in a second, right? We talked about it last week just to catch up because we're not going to talk about it this week, but it's, it's implied through. How long does Jesus stay on the throne in heaven? Forever, okay? So it's just in case you missed that, Jesus stays on his throne ruling righteously Forever. That's going to be important to us in just a second. Okay? So he is at the right hand of God the Father. He's the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And he is a minister in the holy places. All right? Again, minister is active present here. What that means is Jesus is doing something. Guys, did you know that Jesus still does something in heaven? I think for many Christians, and it's, it's probably easy to think this, we think that Jesus did all of his work when he was on earth. And then when he said, it is finished on the cross, we think, whoa, game over. He's just going up to enjoy life in heaven with the Father again. No, no, no. What he said on the cross, it is finished, that was the atoning sacrifice. That was finished. God was satisfied in, in, in his wrath towards sin. He was satisfied in the sacrifice that Jesus gave. He said, it is finished. But his work was far from finished. Jesus will always be working in heaven. He is ministering What's it say? In the holy places. Uh, when we get to chapter 9, it's going to go into greater detail of the holy place and, and what that means. But he's actively ministering in, in the presence of the Father. What, what's going on? God, the Son, Jesus, is mediating or he is advocating for his people to the Father. Do, do you know what that means to mediate or to advocate? It, it is this. He is the one who goes to God on our behalf and tells them, tells him who we are. All right? So, so think of it this way. If you are in Christ, you're a new creation. If you are in Christ, you, you have taken on, by God's grace alone, you have taken on his identity, the Lord Jesus' identity. And now when, when the Lord Jesus is in heaven and, and he is going to the, to the Father on your behalf, he is not going as an accuser 
but as one who loves you and has your best in mind. All right? So, so think of it this way. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father for how long? Forever, okay. And he is advocating on your behalf how long? Forever, okay. And it's good. Just let that sink in. Because I know a lot of us in this room struggle with what our mind tells us, and our mind tells us that we're not good. Our mind tells us that we've messed up too much for God to love us. Our mind tells us that no way God can love us after what we did last night. No way he can love us after what we've done this week or the life that we lived or the consequences that, that we now live with. What this tells us, it tells us a better story. It tells us a different story. That Jesus, our King of Kings, the one that we put our hope and our trust in, is, standing at the, is sitting at the right hand of the Father and he is interceding on our behalf. He is advocating for us to the Father for eternity. Don't, don't miss that, guys. You are if, if, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will forever be gloriously saved. There's no chance of you use, losing your salvation. Not because of what you've done or your capability. Guys, if you could lose your salvation, I promise you we would. We are not really good at keeping promises, are we? I am thinking, and we're going to get to that at, at, towards the end. There was at once upon a time in the scriptures... That the covenant of God, when it was with Noah and when it was with Moses, or with Abraham and, and Moses recorded it down, there, there was this covenant and it was really a conditional covenant on the people. If you were to stay true to God, he would stay true to you. That didn't work out well for the people because they had a really hard time staying true to God for five and a half seconds. And so there is a new and better covenant coming. And that is the, the point of chapter eight today. So Christ is mediating for us. He is advocating for us. Where is he located again? He's at the right hand of God next to him. He has complete access to God forever and always. Where is this taking place? In the true tent. Your Bible may say tabernacle. Tabernacle is literally a word for tent. Sometimes it just seems a lot churched up because it's tabernacle, right? Uh, it is, is another word for tent, uh, but it's a tent that the Lord has set up, a tent of meeting that the Lord has set up and not man. Why is this important, okay? Because this is God's permanent residence. Do you ever wonder? I know you do. I, I know you do because it, it's part of mankind. You, you may not admit it on a Sunday morning. But the struggle's there. Do you ever wonder if God's going to move past his promise? That maybe in the beginning, God had good intentions with all of us, with all of humanity, and said, you know what, I love them, I'm going to create them, they're going to love me, this grand idea. And then all of a sudden, life is pretty muddled. Maybe, maybe it's more in, in coming into vision, more into perspective, whenever you cut on national or world news. And, you know, they don't, they don't ever really report on good things. And if they do, it's like a 30-second clip at the end to take you off the edge. But it's all wicked things, and the world is broken, and there's people doing wicked things. And that's just the stuff that made the news. And there's the millions and millions and millions of things that didn't make the news. And so we wonder sometimes if God truly, is he just going to up and say, you know what? I can't. I won't. What this tells us is the place that the covenant, the new covenant that we're going to talk about in a second, that it takes place isn't in a place built by mortal man that it could be built and then take down. 
It's a place that was already established, that God himself built it. No man put this together. What that means is it's God's permanent residency. This is where he is and nothing will ever change it. He will always be there. What that means is it's never going to change. This should instill in the heart of the believer an extreme confidence in their relationship with God. God's promise isn't going to change. God's favor isn't going to change because of who God is, not because of who we are. Our salvation isn't dictated upon our obedience. Our salvation is dictated on Christ's obedience. And he's already done what he's going to do. And he's promised that he's never going to leave us nor forsake us. Jesus is our high priest. He is the one seated at the place of greatest authority. He's ministering on our behalf, and he is ministering in a place that will never be moved or changed. This is where we get the eternal security of the believer. Notice your role in this. You're not in it. Other than the object of value. Did did you get this? Don't, Don't miss this, okay? Because this is real hard for us overachievers in the room. Us people who think it's our job to do something. God in his grace saved you, and God in his grace keeps you. Nowhere in this does it say, if Josh does this, or if Josh stays away from this, then I'll love him. It doesn't say that. It is by God's grace alone that Jesus Christ saved us by his grace, and he keeps us by his grace, and forever holds us by his grace. Understand that we, living out this truth, it should cause our hearts to leap with joy and our feet to run with passion the race that's been set before us. When we understand God's salvation in our life truly and what that looks like, it should not cause us to say, well, I guess I'm loved. I can go do whatever I want. No, that's not the heart of the belief. The heart of the believer is the one who says, because I am loved in this way, I will forever be grateful to God and I will serve him because I love him. We're not serving God to get God. We're serving God because we have him. Look at verses three and four. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. That it's, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So the author continues to contrast the difference between high priest on earth and Jesus. The reason every priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices is because of their own sinfulness and the sinfulness of the people. All right, so again, if we went back to the Old Testament and understood the Levitical law and what they were supposed to do to cover for their sin, when the priest goes in to make an atonement for the people, whose sin does he have to take care of first? His own. Because the priest, even in the the goodness that he is, even in the line that he comes from, is still a sin-filled man, and he has to make an atonement for his sin before he can go to God on behalf of the other people. So they were always constantly bringing sacrifices to God. Jesus wouldn't fit that mold. Why? Why? Because he has no sin. He didn't have to keep offering sin over and over again because he was sinless. That's why the author says, if he was on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Here's why. Verse 5. It's good right here. They serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. All right, so the priest served a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. This audience, remember, they are a Greek-speaking Jewish audience. All right? So they would well know a guy named Plato. Not Plato, right? 
But Plato, he was the Greek philosopher about 400 years before Christ came. And there was this teaching that he had. And maybe if anybody in the room has taken philosophy or if you've just read up on your own, do you guys remember Plato and the forms or the allegory of the cave, right? This is a really great story and a great learning and teaching tool that Plato used in that day. Um, and, And I'm going to give you the very abbreviated version of this, okay? So Plato's cave uh, or the allegory of the cave was this. It starts out, Plato starts to teach, and he says, imagine life is like this, that there are three men in a cave, and they are chained to the ceiling, looking only at the wall, and the cave is only lit by a fire behind them. And they can't turn their bodies, and they can't turn their head, and all they can see that's on the wall. But constantly, throughout their whole life, they see things in front of them that they think is reality. And as they, as they look, what they, what they have truly is happening is people behind them are walking. And what happens if the fire is at the back and somebody's walking in between them, there's shadows that are cast on the wall. So they can't see reality. All they see is shadows are on the wall. But they don't know any different. So what they know is that shadow is my reality. So their whole life, they say, well, that's a dog, and that's a cat, and that's a person, and that's a a vessel. And so, all of a sudden, one of these people, one of these prisoners, breaks free of the chains. And then Plato says that person then runs outside to freedom, but he is blinded by the light of outside, the sun that's there. And so he looks up into the sky, and he can't see because his eyes are hurting. And after a while, his eye starts to adjust, and he is taken aback by what he sees. Because in his mind, he knew what a dog and a cat and a tree and a vessel and a person and all of these things were. But what he's now looking at, that isn't it. It has color and it has dimension and it has shape. It has all of these things. And before, all he was working on was what he knew. He knew the shadows on the wall. So he walks outside and after a while, he realizes this is true reality and he is leaping with joy and he can't think of anything else than to go back inside the cave and to tell his friends, guys, this isn't real. What's outside is real. You've got to come out here and you've got to see what the sun is illuminating for us. Well, he goes back in and he turns and he looks at the wall again and the shadows are still there, but he can't make them out. Because he's seen what's real, now he can't make out what's fake. Well, here the author is using the allegory of the caves because they know this. In this time, they, they understand this completely. Here's what he's saying. Until Jesus illuminates your heart, all you see is shadows. That you think you know what you like. You think you know what you love. And, and there's some people who are really passionate. People who will say, I want that. I need that. This is who I am. This is where I'm going. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shines this light in your life. You are now blinded. And then when you're able to see again, everything changes. And once you see reality, no way you can go back in there to the shadows. And your only hope and ambition is to run to the people who are still living in the shadows and say, guys, this isn't real. This isn't real. But what Plato says in his allegory is this. The two guys who were left in there beat the man because they thought he was crazy. Because how in the world can this not be real? It's the only thing they ever knew. And so the man went away sad because they wouldn't believe what played out, what, what the, the man who was freed was explaining to him. And many times in our Christian walk, isn't that how it works? 
where God shows us what's real and what's true and we can't help but express. And we know, we've seen it, we've experienced it. And so we go to those who are still living in darkness and only live by shadows and we tell them, that's not real. Don't trust in that. Don't love that. Don't give your life to that. Trust what's coming. Go outside and see the sun. It's going to illuminate everything. And what they do for us is the same thing they did for that man. They beat him. You are crazy. We want nothing to do with you. That's not real. These shadows are real. That's real on the wall and it's not. So what he is saying here about the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, he says, what we have, even in the best moments of worship, is only but a shadow. All right, now, time out. Anybody in this room ever had an awesome moment of worship? Right? Anybody in this room ever had great moments with God on this side of eternity? Imagine what it's going to be like when we get to the other side. If this is a shadow of things to come, if this is something that, that it, it has a form because we, we, we can see it. Paul's going to say later, it's like we look through a glass dimly lit. One day we're going to see in full. Can you imagine what worship is going to be like when we get to heaven? That's what he's saying. Guys, hold on. There's something greater coming. Don't, don't turn back on your faith. Don't run back to the old things. Don't trust in yourself because something greater is coming. When Moses was about to build the tent of meeting, he was instructed by God to build it exactly like the one that he saw when he met God on the mountain. Moses was going to build on earth a copy of something that God had already built in heaven. It was a shadow, and everything that happened in it would only be a shadow of something greater. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is that something greater. That's why when Jesus illuminates us, when he gives light to our life, for a moment, we are blinded. But when our eye and our sight is restored, everything's different. Guys, can you think a testimony in the scriptures? Think of the Apostle Paul. He thought something was a reality. He went to go do his life in that reality. All of a sudden, God blinds him. He sees the trueness of who he is. And after he re restores his sight, everything's different for him. It's this, it's this lived out. But listen, I think that's our story too. At one point, all of us were chasing shadows. But because of Jesus, we no longer live in that silliness and foolishness. And really, on this, on this side of, of salvation, on this side of restoration, that old life is silliness, isn't it? How in the world can we look back and say, why did we love those things? Why did we want those things? But then we've got to be careful. Because as we all know in this room all too well, even as believers, we can have moments of darkness, can't we? where we, for whatever reason, we turn away from the light. We don't read our word like we're supposed to. We don't pray like we're supposed to. We don't gather like we're supposed to. And all of a sudden, those shadows start to look familiar again. And we can find our way in a place that we never wanted to be again. And then when we're there, we say, how did I get here? The light gives illumination to all things. Please know, in the story of Plato in the cave, the man was not the hero, the light was, because the light gave truth to everything that was there. Christ is our hero, not us. How do we stay true to Christ? We stay in Christ. Well, let, let's keep, keep going. Look at verse 6 and verse 7. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as a covenant. He mediates is better. Since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion or no need to look for a second. So Jesus is the far greater. 
And he has a ministry that is far greater than any priest that's ever lived. The covenant he mediates is far greater, and his promises are better, all right? So the first covenant is flawed. All right, so again, time out. We talked about last week. Who gave the covenant? God gave the covenant. The covenant is flawed. Does that mean God is flawed? No. All right, so when we think flawed, don't think like flawed and busted. Think like flawed and incomplete. Okay? wasn't that God gave something and said, ooh, probably shouldn't have did that. Let me rework something. God gave what we needed at that moment, but always with the promise that something greater was coming. Right? So think of Adam and Eve in the garden. Okay? Adam and Eve sinned against God. What did they deserve? Death. What did they get? Fig leaves. Wait, what does fig leaves have to do with anything? God covered their nakedness and covered their shame. He did give them consequences. They had to leave the garden and they could not come back. But the promise was made. There is one coming that will take away your sin and your shame forever. What these fig leaves do only for a second, there's one coming who will forever take them away. The promise was always there, guys, that in God's faithfulness, he gives us what we need in the moment. But the promise of better and far greater was on the way. And that's what we see here in the new covenant. All right, so as, as we jump to the next line, okay, when we get into verse 8, uh, we're going to look at a promise recorded in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. But it's going to be recorded in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 12, okay? So let's, let's read through this together, and we're going to take our time here because in this um, Jeremiah 31 is the new covenant that was promised Old Testament that's now being fulfilled in Christ. All right, so here we go. Verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. All right, now here we go. That's the old covenant. That was the if-then Contingent covenant. If the people were to be true to God, God would bless them and keep them. If they didn't, if they wanted to go serve other gods, go serve them. That's a good covenant if you're faithful to God. But if you're not faithful to God, it's not good for you, right? So so think about it even in this mindset. Think of Joshua 24. Think, Think of what Joshua communicates to the people. We hear that and it's kind of this stern ultimatum and it makes us want to kind of dig in our heels. If you want to go serve the gods that your father served beyond the river Euphrates, you go do that. But for me and my house, what? We'll serve the Lord. So like we hear that and we say, I'm going to go serve the Lord. But again, isn't that not a promise that we're saying I'm going to keep for God? It was always a shadow of something better to come. The something better to come, and we're going to read it in just a second, is where God takes the penalty of sin by his own payment. So he gives what we couldn't pay so he could promise what we couldn't promise. Let's read it together. Start in verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. What a verse. All right. Notice, it is no longer contingent on what you do. 
before, they didn't, they didn't stay faithful to God, therefore God showed no concern to them. Here, what God is saying is, I am faithful to you in reference to what, because of what Jesus has done. So Jesus has taken the penalty of sin. He went, he went to Calvary on our behalf, taking the penalty of sin. So now the promise of God will never be taken away. So what do we get because of what Jesus has done, believer? Here's what it says. I will put my law into their hearts. I will write it into the, I'll put my law into their mind. I'll write it in their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Verse 11. They shall not teach each other. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall know me. Now, this is kind of strange. It almost sounds like, well, if that's true, then we don't need to do discipleship. No, it's this. It's God is going to allow us to know him in such a way that if you are a true believer, the spirit inside of you and the word of God in front of you is going to guide your heart to know God, that you don't have to become a Christian and go to a beginner class to start your journey. There have been people faithful for years and years and years and years because they've had God's word and God's presence in their life. Even people who didn't have God's word, they had God's presence in their life and and they knew on some level that they were God's and God was theirs. Look at this last part of verse 11. From the least of them to what? To the greatest. All right, in here. I want everybody's eyes right here. This is, this is how we talk to our kids at home when we don't want them to miss something important. Give me your eyes. I don't care what you've done in this room. God loves you. He's got a plan for you. You, you are not a throwaway. You are not a mistake. You've not out the grace of God. So hear me though, hear me. This isn't in universalist teaching. If you have not trusted your life to Christ... If you have not repented of your sin and said, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. I give you my life. If you've not done that, then you are an enemy of God. But if you have trusted your life to Jesus Christ, from the least to the greatest, you are his and you will forever be his. Don't let the enemy ever lie to you and make you think that you're a throwaway because of something you've done. If you belong to God gloriously, you will forever belong to God. Now, look at verse 12. This is just icing on the cake. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. All right, so if anybody in the room in here has ever struggled with sin that you hate, you've done it and you hate it. You can't forget about it. Right now, maybe even me saying that, you're now playing flashbacks in your mind of stupid stuff that you've done that you wish you weren't thinking about in church. God forgives that too. But this is the crazy thing about God. Now, we could go into discussion why I think this is this way. For some reason, God allows us to be forgiven, but not to forget. But God forgives and forgets. He holds no record to us. He doesn't say, I've forgiven you, but remember that time. No. When he sees you, he sees his glorious son. That's why here in verse 12, he says, I will be merciful towards their iniquities. Do you know what mercy is? It's not getting what you do deserve. So we've messed up. We deserve wrath. We deserve, we deserve whatever it is that's coming to us. And God says, I'm going to be merciful towards that. I'm not, going to give you, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'm not going to give you completely what you deserve. And I will remember their sins no more. Verse 13. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. 
And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. All right, so the old covenant is becoming obsolete, growing old, and ready to vanish away. The, the imagery here in the Greek is old, worn-out clothes. That they've been worn and they've served their purpose, but guys, it's time to change them. The new covenant is far greater than the old. Why? Because it's based on the work of Jesus Christ alone. It's not on what you've done. You don't have to leave here and walk on eggshells, wonder, oh no, I messed up again, God's going to hate me. No, no, you leave here and you know you're forever loved by God if you are in God. And nothing will ever change that. Jesus is better. His covenant promise is better. Better than what? Better than anything we can offer or anything that we can do. I know that there are probably still somebody in here who's going to say, nope, I'm going to make a promise to God. I'm not going to sin anymore. Good luck. Guys, we're all struggling in that, in that bus. Again, this isn't freedom to keep sinning, but this is freedom to get back up when we do mess up. To run to Christ, to run to his grace, to run to his mercy. Stop trusting in ourselves and place our trust in Christ alone. All right, so... Here's what I believe about today. Prayed about it, kind of a strange deal. It's kind of an academic day more than anything else. I don't know if you feel that. I felt that in preparation. I felt that even in preaching it just a while ago. But the Lord gave me this piece this week. There's somebody in all of these services that we're going to talk through today that needs to give their life to Christ. Like you need to do that. I don't know who you are, and I'm not trying to single you out, but I do know it's you. And God is telling you today that you can trust him. He's good. He's better than anything that you're, you got going right now. Because right now you're in the shadowy place. You think it's real, but it's not. That's why you'll take a taste of something and it doesn't taste right. That's why you smell something and it doesn't smell right. That's why you enjoy something and there's no enjoyment. It's not real. It's only a shadow. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I promise you, I will give you light and it will never be the same for you. Guys, we don't have to live in the shadow lands anymore. Trust Jesus and be born again today.